Old powers waken, shadows stir, an age of wonder and terror will soon be upon us, an age for gods and heroes. The glass candles are burning, and you're listening to the Obsidian Nights Podcast. Our prologue opens up with three men of the Night's Watch. They are rangers that have gone beyond the wall tracking a band of wildlings. Currently, they are at least eight days away from the wall. There's Garrod, a veteran of the Night's Watch, well past 50 years in age. He's been serving the Night's Watch for about 40 years, and can kind of sense that there's something off about this night. There's something dark and cold lurking in the woods. And then there's Will. Will has been a part of the Night's Watch for about four years. He can move more silently through the woods than any other man, which is what makes him an excellent ranger. And finally, there's Sir Waymore Royce, the youngest of the three. But since he's from a noble house, he was put in charge of the ranging. And like most lordlings, Sir Waymore is a total jerk. As I said, their goal is to track wildlings, the free folk who live beyond the wall. At the opening of the chapter, they are discussing what Will, who had went ahead, had seen. Will had seen the wildlings dead, all of them, inexplicably. Garrett, putting his wisdom and experience to good use, suggests that they turn back now, and Will basically agrees with him. But Royce is determined to prove himself to the other men of the Night's Watch, who do not respect him, and this is his first ranging, so he must show that he is capable. Royce decides that they will go forward and make sure that these wildlings are really dead. Turns out he doesn't really trust Will. So, our three ride off deeper into the darkness of the haunted forest in search of dead wildlings. So that's how this chapter begins. So with this chapter right from the start, George R.R. R. Martin immediately puts into our minds that something is not right here. It seems that both Garrett and Will can tell. Is there something terrible and malevolent moving through the trees just out of sight? Also, as Gray and I will talk about more later in this podcast, this chapter hints at a much larger and much more expansive world than we see over these first few pages. It is not initially explained what the Night's Watch is, or even what the Wall is. We don't really exactly know where these characters are relative to the rest of their world. And then there is, of course, the hint of something monstrous and ancient in the woods. There's a lot of mystery right off the bat, and it's part of what I really love about this chapter. I agree. I think this chapter, what, what, why I really like it, why I really love it, is because right off the bat, like you said, it's setting up this bigger fantasy world. And we, we get to see this. When we leave the prologue and we go on to the books and everyone's like, no, these things don't exist. No, no, no. Kids' tales, crib tales, hearth tales. We've already seen it, so we know it's real. And another thing I think it sets up is... 
this world. It sets up the order of things. There's no way in hell Sir Waymar Royce should be leading Garrett. Garrett should be leading this ranging. And Sir Waymar's just kind of like getting the position just because he has high birth. Yeah. And he is, he fails his the, first ranging. Right from the beginning, George R. R. Martin immediately sets up the fallacy of this kind of feudal system. If Waymore Royce had have listened to Garrett, maybe he would be alive. Spoiler for what happens later on in the chapter. But yeah, basically, this chapter is so good because it lets you know right off the bat, it's all real. The magic is real. The stories are real. And so when you jump to the characters and they're kind of denying it, not really taking it seriously, you know in the back of your mind, they really should kind of wake up and see it for what it really is because you've already been like let in on the secret. This chapter encompasses the freaking story as a whole. Garrett is the man that knows what he's talking about. He's the veteran. He's been here before. Like, he's missing an ear. And then you have this young lord from the Vale that is just, like, not trying to take any advice, not listening to him. Sir Waymar Royce, he, he just kind of dismisses. He dismisses yeah. any thought that there's anything in the woods. And he dis- he dismisses it even though he himself can feel it. He's denying it. Like, Garrett can feel it, Will can feel it, and you can, if you read between the lines, you can see that uh, Royce is kind of afraid too, but he's powering through it because he's so determined not to fail. And then another thing in this chapter too is George R. R. Martin immediately sets up that cold is the enemy. Garrett says, it burns, it does. Nothing burns like the cold, but only for a while. Then it gets inside you and starts to fill you up. And after a while, you don't have the strength to fight it. And I think that's a good metaphor for what happens when the White Walkers take over. Like, Very. Yeah. Very good. And it also sets up that duality of like ice and fire because it burns. Nothing burns like the cold. When you think of burns, you think of fire. And it's just like, okay, so he's setting up the ice and fire right off the bat, right in the prologue. I love it. And, and he's setting it up in a, in a way where it's like ice is a part of fire and vice versa because it's, it's cold that's burning. So that's like, I always point out to people that it's a song of ice and fire, not like a battle of ice and fire. Oh, right. So like the song implies harmony that there's two things together. So right from the bat, it's like ice and it's fire, so it's burning ice. And it's just brilliant symbolism, I think. Like, Yeah, and it, so we're basically, this is a reread, but we're spoiling all of the books here because we're going to be going chapter by chapter and connecting all of the dots. But it resonates so well with that quote from Jojen to Bran from Storm of Swords. If ice can burn, said Jojen in his solemn voice, then love and hate can mate mountain or marsh it makes no matter the land is one so and that's from a storm of swords again he's emphasizing that duality it's about the bonding of the two it's about the two working in balance it's not a fight uh and i I think that's crucial to the story and i think yeah both of these quotes embody that for sure so as the story continues and this is kind of a, a shorter chapter because it is the prologue um royce 
demands that they seek out these these dead wildlings that Will has has seen on his rangings further further north. And keep in mind about and now they're about eight they're about an eight days walk from the wall. And you've got Garrett he's saying like we don't want to get caught in like an ice storm, it'll really suck. And keep in mind too that Garrett like I said, he's been a member of the Night's Watch for 40 years. So this dude knows what he's talking about. And he is stressing hard in this beginning that there's something wrong. There's something here. He even says at some point, can't you hear the darkness? He says, can't you can't you feel that there's something out there? And I, like I said, Royce can, but he's denying it. So they continue and they, they, they range up north and they get to the place where Will ha had seen the dead wildlings. And they're gone. And that's when Will really knows something is wrong. So Royce commands him to climb up a tree. He says, they've got to be out here somewhere. Whoever, wherever they are, they've got to be here. Climb up a tree. Look for a fire. And then the others come. The others. Also known as the White Walkers. Yes. So the White Walkers, in my opinion, are the main antagonist of the story. Yeah, and we decided before this that we would maybe touch on the show a little bit, just just for just for a comparison's sake, because in the show they're clearly doing a different thing, and you can see here in this initial chapter that George R. R. Martin immediately sets it up like this is the great threat right off the bat. This is the first enemy that you come across, and this is not just the enemy of these three here. Like the they're being set up here as the enemy of all men. Yes. And and later, like this is probably one of the we we don't see the white walkers that much in the books. We don't get that many interactions with them. And this is one of those big interactions and I would say one of the most more revealing interactions because we do learn that they have personality. We do learn that they have language, that they communicate with each other. We learn that, um, and and he said he and he and he sets it up in the prologue, but even later, and he sets it up that the White Walkers are the antagonists, or the others are the antagonists. He sets it up in the prologue, but even later, as we continue through the books, it's set up so subtly over and over and over again even with like people telling rob um osha telling rob now osha's a wildling so osha knows about the the white walker she knows the real lore the real truth and she's telling telling brian like your brother is marching the wrong way because she knows the threat that's coming from the north and she and the wildlings remember like they they they've they've been in the north. They remember what happened then, and I feel like they kept the memory better than anyone else. And so, yes. it's a good point about the the White Walkers, the others too. Uh, a lot of a lot about them is revealed in this chapter. It's probably the most that we've gotten about them since, right? So yeah. it's like language, culture. Um, they have humor. They're they're laughing at Royce. Um, from what we can tell, there's six others that show up there are five watchers that kind of watch from the trees and then there is the one that comes up and accepts royce's challenge so that right there tells you that they have culture they understand what it is to battle like one-on-one -on -one 
with someone. And then the fact that they're laughing from the sidelines shows you that they're not just cold monsters. They have a deeper understanding. Even though they are inhuman, there is some humanness to them right off the bat. And then also what's really interesting about them is their language, which is described as like cracking ice. And then there's stuff later on in the book, in the books involving the children of the forest who come, who come into play later. Um, and their language being kind of like an inversion or kind of like a frozen form of what the children of the forest language is. So it's yeah. so that, yeah, so it's like the children of the forest are kind of like rivers and like the rustling of leaves while it's the others, it's like crackling ice. So it's like f- yeah. the frozen form of that. So they're both like the embodiments of nature, except one is frozen and one is not. And you also learn in this chapter that the others can reawaken the dead. So you immediately see what they're capable of because they handle Royce like he is nothing. So let me basically uh, finish explaining the rest of the chapter and what happens. So basically, we left off. The others approach, right? Mm -hmm. And Royce fights. He parries with one of them for a little bit, but he is no match. Will watches from the tree. Garrett is somewhere else. And obviously, Royce is no match for the other. Eventually, his sword shatters. And that's the thing about the White Walkers. They they have these ice sword things. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But his sword shatters. The others approach, and they end him. Will comes down from the tree to get his broken sword as proof to the others back at the Night's Watch as to what happened. But then Royce awakens, and he's got blue, deep blue eyes that burn with the cold. And that's another reference to burning ice. And the chapter ends. And then we cut to something else. And it is such a brilliant opening. It it tells you you so much about... It gives you everything that you need to know about the White Walkers. They're extremely powerful, nearly invulnerable, and they raise the dead. Yeah, I wanted to touch on one thing that is alluded to in this chapter. And it's... It has to do with Sir Waymore Royce, and it has to do with the sword that he had that he has. So, Sir Waymore Royce, when he go- goes ahead and is like, "Okay, you want to fight? Let's fight. Dance with me, then." That's like one of the bad. Like I, I am so appalled we didn't get to see that line. But Sir Waymore Royce has this sword, and it's castle forged. It's really ornament. It's like it has jewels in the hilt. And he, when he raises the sword, I think the other freezes. And like Will is like, oh, like hoping that the uh, like the other gets kind of scared of him. I was just going to, I just want to read the quote because it's so badass. Sir Waymar met him bravely. Dance with me then. He lifted his sword high over his head, defiant. His hands trembled from the weight of it, or perhaps from the cold. Yet in that moment, Will thought, he was a boy no longer, but a man of the Night's Watch. The other halted. Will saw its eyes, blue, deeper and bluer than any human eyes, a blue that burned like ice. They fixed on the longsword, trembling on high, watched the moonlight running cold along the metal. For a heartbeat, he dared to hope. Again, it's setting up that duality with blue eyes that burned like ice 
is setting up that ice and fire duality. And it's also um, saying uh, the other specifically fixed his eyes on the sword. I don't know, maybe something about it gave him pause. Because though uh, Royce is an arrogant kind of jerk, he did have some bravery to him. Like it took bravery for him to, I'm sure being the lordling that he is, he wouldn't have had to have gone beyond the wall because he'd only been in the Night's Watch for a few months. I feel like this was his choice. And then he he's the one that wanted to go on and keep looking, even though he was clearly afraid. So maybe it was simply his willingness to challenge the other that gave him pause. He just he just kind of thought, oh, you, really? You're going to challenge me? Do you know? Can't you see what I am? Can't you see my power, essentially? So the other's like, oh, this guy must have Lightbringer if he's this brave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the others know that they're possibly vulnerable to Valyrian Steel. And maybe they thought it was Valyrian Steel. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because they definitely should have that understanding. I feel like these... These guys have a culture. They have knowledge. They know what they're doing. Um, so, so for sure, they understand that there is something that, that that can kill them, and they understand that they have weaknesses. And maybe seeing like such an ornamented sword, he might have thought for a second, like, "Wait, is that Valyrian steel? Is that one of these mortal weapons that can undo us?" But then he realized that it wasn't, and so he continued to fight. So, I think too, what's interesting about this chapter two. Uh, when they actually do have the sword fight because that doesn't happen in the show they don't have like the whole like kind of like sword fight like it is here so what's interesting is that this, his sword doesn't immediately shatter i feel i feel like what was going on here is it doesn't shatter maybe until the other others want to maybe they have some control over um the power uh, that they're channeling through the blade or something like that. Um, and also kind of what that hinted to me was that they were toying with him. Like this was a game to them because you've got the one that comes out to fight him. And then the rest of them are just like kind of laughing. And then he's like really messing him up. And then eventually when he finally, when he makes his final stand and he screams for Robert, the, it says that the other, his parry was kind of just like lazy. It wasn't even, he wasn't even really trying. It's just like, whoop. Yeah. Messing about like, like it was like, like it was nothing. Like there was nothing to it. And then they're just laughing at him. It was just kind of like a game to them. Yeah. Because was... you would think, why would the other even indulge him in this way? Why mm -hmm. not just immediately just kill him? It's, it's hinting at these others having a deeper culture and like a deeper just weight to them. There's more, much more to them than just, we're just monsters they yeah. are inhuman but they are human yeah this, yeah for sure um george says that he bases them around the she from irish folklore i know you've done some stuff on that on your channel um and in memory sorrow and thorn which is another books uh, which is another fantasy book series a book series that i really love those um the antagonist is has very good reasons for being the antagonist. And I feel like we're going to learn in the Winds of Winter that these White Walkers, these others, they have good reasons for why they're doing the things that they do. I think there's more to them than just death. Because death wouldn't play games. Death wouldn't barter babies. Yeah. Like there's some there's more to them. 
Yeah, I've always thought that, like, whatever it was, like, in the end, that the others would be somewhat more sympathetic. I mean, you can't forgive everything they're doing because they're clearly, they're clearly, like, against Team Human. But I feel like maybe they should be. And then as we get into more of the story and to breaking it down, like, one of the key themes that George R. R. Martin focuses on is kind of like the blurred lines between good, good and evil. What is good? What is evil? Um, it, it, it's a matter of perspective a lot of the time. Um, from their perspective, perhaps the humans are the bad guys. Yes. So we can talk about the description of the others a little bit. Yes. So I'm going to read this little passage when uh, the other first emerges from the woods. A shadow emerged from the dark of the wood. It stood in front of Royce, tall it was, and gaunt, and hard as old bones, with flesh as pale as milk. Its armor seemed to change color as it moved. Here it was white as new-fallen snow, there black as shadow, everywhere dappled with the deep gray-green of the trees. The patterns ran like moonlight on water with every step it took. At multiple points in this chapter, the others are described as shadows. Yes. Um, so I don't know if that's merely colorful or, in this case, shadowy language. Just meant to refer to them ambiguously, you know, keeping them mysterious. Or if it was maybe metaphorical for something else. I think it's a choice. I mean, I think it's I think they are not actually shadows, but the way that they move is very shadow-like and even later i think in a dance of dragons is it a dance of dragons tormund explains them as the mist because you can't really see them like 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 it's like you just described their armor their camouflage armor changes colors it makes them blend in with everything that they're next to which is like the children of the forest the way that they dress in the series, they look in 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 the show. <laughs> they like if they were standing next to a tree, they would blend in with the tree. Yeah, well, same in the book. It says like the children adorn themselves with like the leaves of the earth, and like they didn't wear like cloth or stuff. They just kind of wore leaves and just kind of blended in with nature. Yeah. So like in the same way, the others are like kind of like the ice inversion of the children of the forest, which we will talk about way more. As like we get going with this Obsidian Knights podcast, what what seems to be described from the beginning, from the get go, is like that they are ice beings. It's getting colder. It's like really cold in this area for some reason, even though it's mentioned earlier that the wall was weeping. So it shouldn't necessarily be this cold here. And so these are beings that they bring the cold with them. It seems, and then their swords are clearly like swords of like ice. Um, razor sharp, um, slightly blue shimmer, like George R. R. Martin um, says, a ghost light around the edges. So I kind of imagine, look, look, if you like take an ice cube out of the freezer and you put it in a hot room, how it just kind of like, there's like a little bit of mist on the edge, yes. you can just see it coming off. So that's how I kind of imagine um, not only them, but the, their weapons and their armor as well. If you um, can think back to, I think it's like season two, episode 10 of game of thrones it's like the first time we actually full-on see a white walker besides like shadows because in the in the prologue they they just look like shadows Mm -hmm. but 
when we first see them and he's on the horse, he has that mist yeah. trailing behind him. The, that's when I feel like the White Walkers looked better than ever. Yeah. They looked the most accurate. Except, well, you don't really see it in this chapter. But the thing about the others is that eventually they're kind of described as kind of beautiful. They're just kind of like inhuman things. Like in, in, in the show, they kind of took it in a direction where it's like they just look like kind of like old men. They look and, and, and I feel like that choice kind of made it so that a lot of people were actually confused. Like a lot of people that just watched the show didn't understand necessarily that there are the others, a.k.a. the White Walkers, who are like ice beings, like living ice. And then there were the dead guys that that, that, that were their thralls that they awaken from the dead. Right. Like the wildlings in this chapter and then like yeah. later Royce. So I feel like a lot of people didn't understand that because in the show they just kind of looked like old men. So because I, I when I was initially watching that, I had some friends say to me like, wow, how old is that guy? Like, how old is that dead body? I'm like, that's not a dead body. That's one of the White Walkers. So I don't know if it was necessarily translated the best, but they did a pretty good job, I would say. Um, the the what, what is that? Um, SFX? bomb <laughs> for yeah. the show but for the but like what you're the most accurate book description is when we first see them and they just like that guy just has on a loincloth and he's barefoot like that's how i would see the others being mm-hmm. in the books i would not see the others in like black leather armor no. see that that i feel like that was it that was kind of a mistake yeah it putting them in that armor was a huge mistake because it's not what it's supposed to they they don't have leather they don't have it even it even says in this chapter like no human metal had gone into the making of this yeah this is like some other inhuman type of material and see the thing that basically what's going on here is that the others can manipulate ice in ways that people can't even begin to comprehend yeah, and like you were touching on earlier about the others bringing the cold with them, mm-hmm. that is very accurate because later on we have Tormund saying, you know, like it's so cold when they come, you can't even breathe. Mm-hmm. It's that cold. And um, Waymar, the reason Waymar is like, you know, those wildlings, they can't have died from the cold because the wall was weeping. So he did have enough sense to like point out, yeah, the wall's weeping. And um, so I guess that means when the wall's weeping, that means like ice is melting, like it's like watery. It's like, it's like, it's like, I guess the temperature is above freezing. So like the wall is like melting a little bit. Yeah. So that's how they know it's like not super, cold super enough. cold. Yeah. Cold enough for the wildlings to freeze to death. Yeah. And I might be mistaken. But aren't they tracking the wildlings because the wildlings are abandoning their villages? I know they. I don't think they say it in this chapter, but I think later on. Later on, they are. But you don't in 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 the in this opening. You don't necessarily know why why they are tracking the wildlings. But that is what we find out later. Yeah. So we get the introduction to the others. The introduction to the wildling. The we get the introduction to the others. The introductions to the wildlings, even though we don't know what the wildlings are, and we get the introduction to the Night's Watch. Yeah. And we kind of learn off the bat from Will that the Night's Watch 
is somewhat of a punishment because we find out that Will got there because he was hunting somewhere where he wasn't allowed to be hunting. Yeah. So you actually learn about so much in this chapter right off the bat, like you said, White Walkers, Wildlings, Night's Watch, The Wall, and even Royce says, Fort Robert, right before he dies, so you don't even know who Robert is uh, until later, Robert is the king of Westeros. But yes. yeah, there's so much in this chapter, like right off the bat, he just kind of throws you in the universe. And it's just like, it already feels bigger than what you're seeing here. And the whole time you're reading, you're like, when are we going to get back to the prologue? Like, when are we going to find out what what's going on beyond the wall? Because once you're like submersed in it, you don't really get any more information on the White Walkers for a while. Yeah. So... What's interesting about this, and this is a slight spoiler, I'm not going to completely spoil this, but you probably know this if you've seen Game of Thrones, but like George R. Martin kind of sandwiches this book. It opens with ice, and then if you're familiar with the ending, it ends with fire. So it opens and ends with both sides of magic, while in between it sets up the realness yes. and the grittiness of the world. Yeah, I like that. And I also like, in this one chapter, he's setting up ice and fire being the same thing like three or four times. <laughs> yeah, like they're emanating from the same force. They need each other. Like with without one, you can't have the other. See, that's the thing about dualism. Without one, you literally cannot have the other. Like what is darkness without light? Like you can't call it darkness if there's never been light, if there is no light. You see what I mean? Yeah. Definitely. The others, to me, would look like the Targaryens, but made of ice. And then we know that the others are from the land of always winter, and they're associated with all things cold. And then we have the Valyrians, who are from the lands of long summer, and they're associated with things that are hot. And then you're opening a chapter, you're opening the book with the others, and then you're closing the book with the Valyrians or Targaryen. So I just feel like it's he's sowing all of these ice and fire seeds from the beginning to the end of this book. So this chapter sets up the horror and the scale of A Song of Ice and Fire and what's interesting about it is that all these characters, none of these people that you see in the prologue are actually main characters. But like you've kind of been like slightly prepared as much as you can be for like the immense scope of the world that you're about to be thrown into. And then also what's interesting about it, like we mentioned before, it's like you're hit in the face with fantasy in the beginning. But then it's like in between, it's just like now look at what everyone else is focused on. And it gets pulled all the way back all the way until the end and it's like by the end you're set up to the point where it's like you'll believe anything it's like you're hit in the face with the fantasy at first and you're just kind of like yeah whatever and then through the story you get the deep lore and you, and you get it all set up and, and you're so well prepared by the end so that when you see what happens it's like this is perfect this is understandable this is meaningful, like random stuff. The world is set up and it's consistent. And that to me is the main thing that makes good high fantasy good high fantasy. It's set in Westeros, a world that is separate from our own primary world. And its internal rules make sense within the context of its setting and its story. 
I think very few people will read this prologue and then not want to read the rest of the book. It is that good. Yeah, the prologue is bomb. My um whole thing with this is after you read the prologue, it's like, okay, so what about those things that were up there messing with the Night's Watch? Why isn't anyone talking about that? Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? They need to be going this way. They're going the wrong way. Why are they going to do this? So it's so good that he put it right in the beginning. So you know that they're there. The characters don't. You get to experience the characters trying to convince other people that there's these ice beings slaughtering people and no one cares. Yeah, and it feeds into that deeper tension that you as the reader has while reading the story, having knowledge that the characters don't possess. Like, so while the kings are squabbling, it's this threat in the north is building, and it's just very compelling. So, that was the prologue of A Game of Thrones. Thank you for listening. This has been the Obsidian Knights podcast, featuring Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire and... MJ from Gray Area. Thank you guys so much for listening. This will be a bi-weekly podcast where we will do deep dives into every chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire in order. So keep your glass candles lit and prepare for more Obsidian Nights.